This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 414, a conversation with Terry Kavanaugh. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 414 where we have a conversation with uh, Terry Kavanaugh. Uh, he was instrumental behind the Avengers storyline, The Crossing, in the 90s. He was also the man who came up with the original concept of revisiting the Clone Saga in the 1990s as well. Uh, he's uh, been a writer and editor uh, at Marvel. We had a, a great conversation about what he's doing now. Also, uh, a lot of what he worked on back in the day, uh, what he can take credit for or blame for, depending on your point of view. Uh, it was a really enjoyable conversation to be able to uh, dig into the origins of the, these two particular, um, uh, you know, kind of infamous or uh, at least uh, definitely big things that happened in the 90s. Again, your mileage of both of them might vary, uh, but it was interesting to be able to talk to him about that. Um, and there's a lot of other good stuff in this episode as well, so I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, though, let's jump right into the episode where we have a conversation with Terry Kavanaugh. Terry, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you doing this evening? Very good, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to do the show. I really appreciate it. Um, usually what I like to... I like to do a lot of different things when I interview people in terms of the first question. Uh, I guess the one I would like to ask you is, what, when, you, when you've signed stuff in the past, what's been the most common thing you've had to sign? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, huh. Yeah, I'm sure it was Spider-Man works and probably... Maybe even Web of Spider-Man 100. I'm not sure. I can't say a specific issue, but I'm, it, it, would, it would be either Spider-Man comics or X-Man comics uh, or maybe even some Marvel Comics Presents, some Weapon X, because I was the editor on that series, and that certainly was put in front of me very often. What would you say is what would you say is one of the the weirdest or rarest things you have had to sign? Like the thing that you're like, oh, I even did this. Oh, uh, that would probably be Kicker's Inc. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because it, it, the first thing I ever wrote for Marvel was a, an issue of Kicker's Inc. So I do sort of forget that I go back that far, uh, and then the new universe itself seems to be a a forgotten patch of Marvel history in some ways so I, I, I am sort of surprised when it when it comes comes across my desk or across my table now I guess that's how, that's how you know you've uh, you found a true fan of yours though right that's true or or a true football fan oh well fair enough <laughs> it could be either now what was it about comics that kind of were you a fan growing up or was it something you came to later? Oh, I was a passionate fan growing up. I mean, I, I, uh, as most people of my generation did, I started reading comics at the dentist and the the barber shop because they would have comic books lying around there. And you know, I probably started out reading Archie's and Harvey comics, like you know Casper, and then graduate. Well, I probably started with the Harveys and then graduated maybe to Archie's and then graduated to superheroes and. Uh, Marvel was my particular passion. I enjoyed the DC Comics as well, but um, as I, it, it, in fact, it's what really graduated me on to reading 
regular books and prose. I, you know, the first stuff I remember reading outside of comic books were Greek and Roman mythology because they were effectively superheroes, those Greek and Roman gods. So it was some version of reading, of continuing my love of superheroes. And I, you know, I was such a passionate fan that I, I went to a uh, Catholic grammar school growing up and we were not allowed, I'm going to make a confession here, we were not allowed to leave the school grounds. But when I was younger, comics came out on Tuesdays, not Wednesdays. And the local comic or local candy store that was four blocks from my school, I would run there at lunchtime on Tuesdays with whatever money I'd been given for the week for school lunches. And I just never ate school lunches. I instead spent it on comic books. <laughs> and uh, they eventually, they were very sweet. This was a mom and pop candy store. And they knew I'd be coming, they eventually sort of recognized this and would wait and let me, hand me the wire clippers so I could clip open the wire-bound bundles of comics and have the first choice of the issues, and it was just a very special experience for me every Tuesday. Wow. Now, what uh, what characters were kind of your, your favorites? You mentioned Marvels, but any particular Marvel characters? Yeah, I would say probably Iron Man and Daredevil were my favorite characters growing up. I mean, Iron Man was the guy you could grow up to be. He didn't really have any powers. It was it was hard to wish you could get you were going to get bitten by a radioactive spider because you know probably wouldn't have worked anyway. And I and I also obviously was a huge Batman fan for the same reason. Uh, you could grow up to be Batman. You could grow up to be Iron Man. In fact, in in pursuit of growing up to be Batman, I did have a treehouse like everyone in my neighborhood. And um, I would go ride my bike to the local gas stations and get all the local maps. And then I would sit in my treehouse and try to memorize all the local maps so that <laughs> if and when I found myself chasing some villains uh, or being chased by villains, I would know the shortcuts down alleys, etc. I just felt it was my duty to memorize everything everywhere the way Batman would. That's amazing. It didn't, I, in the end, I don't think I, I think I knew my block really, really well, but I, I don't think I could have told you about any shortcuts <laughs> my block. Now, I'm going to jump ahead, but you mentioned that Iron Man was kind of one of your favorites. What was it like when you were given the reins to write his ongoing series? It was great. I, I, loved Iron Man. I loved the Avengers in general. I really enjoyed writing the Avengers and Iron Man. There was a bit of a, a, a controversial storyline introduced while I was writing it, and it, it, I'm not saying it wasn't my idea and that I wasn't on board with it, which was the end of The Crossing, Tony Stark, adult Tony Stark dies, and teen Tony Stark is brought uh, to the present. And Took a lot of abuse about that as well, but that was a combined decision of editorial and myself um, in an attempt to, at that point, really, the X-Men were getting all the attention all the time. So there were constantly efforts being made to draw some attention and some fan love to other Marvel characters, really, so that they wouldn't just go by the wayside. But what was it like to, you know, kind of, you get you get the job of writing the character you love growing up, and then one of your main first stories is to rip him apart. Well, uh, it, again, that was, you know, there were other, there were people who were writing Thor, and there were, we would have 
editorial and writers' conferences and discuss what we were going to do. And The Crossing was a big crossover storyline that was agreed on editorially and by the writers. And Tony Stark was a focus of this. And, you know, a, a, a part of our job, both part of my job both as an editor and a writer, was to shepherd those characters. We didn't own those characters. We couldn't decide what to do with them alone. We, it was done by committee, the decisions about what to do in most cases. And really, then the job, then the job became... Okay, this is what's going to happen, Iron Man. I want to do it as respectfully and well as possible, and with the most love for the character. I, I was always very aware, again, both editorially and as a writer. Uh, I never felt it was my job to. It was our job to entertain, not to educate. But I did think it was our job to not miseducate, to not uh, give false messages out there, and. I was very focused on the joy, and in fact, almost everyone who worked at Marvel, I, I can speak for them. We all were very, we'd all grown up with this great passion and love for comic books. We loved them when we were a kid. We loved them as adults. We loved each other. It was a great working environment. Uh, everybody was very creative. We had a lot of fun. We could have passionate arguments at lunch about whether Spider-Man would hit Captain America from behind, even if Captain America was possessed by a zombie. Uh, eventually, the waitresses and waiters would wander away and get a little nervous about our conversations. But I was, we all were very aware that if we did our jobs right, and if we treated these characters with respect, and, and with the love that we felt for them, and that came across on the page, we really, hopefully, were bringing that same sense of joy and excitement to kids that comic books had brought to us. And we were well aware of the responsibility of that and the privilege and the fun of it. What was it like to uh, kind of come up with or at least write a version of Tony Stark as Teen Tony that was very different from what we, anyone had ever really gotten used to? That was actually a lot of fun for me because we knew what Tony Stark was going to develop into. We knew about his arrogance. We knew about his... Uh, alcoholism that was down the road for him so I could write stories about Tony going to frat parties and, and, and I could introduce some of these elements that uh, were going to become hardened into him later on. Uh, my approach for instance to Team Tony was he wasn't arrogant, he was brash but that brashness, as you get more successful and as you get older, runs the risk of turning into arrogance. And it, and it may be a subtle distinction, but it was one in my head that I tried to bring to the page. Was it fun to use old supporting characters that hadn't been seen in so long in new ways? Absolutely. Always. That's, again, one of the great fun elements of working for Marvel and or DC is that you have access to these to this just huge smorgasbord of characters, really, that you can... And the, and the most fun thing to do was to move them around and to not necessarily play Mary Jane Watson against Peter Parker, but like they're doing in Iron Man now, have Mary Jane Watson interacting with Tony Stark. That, to me, was a lot of fun. And then you quickly learn also that the most dramatic pairings put the good girl... With the good guy, 
that's not as interesting as putting the bad girl with the good guy or the bad guy with the good girl. You that just lends itself to more drama. So a lot of the uh, normal pairings of characters or groups of characters, it was really fun to move them around on the chessboard a little bit. With regards to the crossing, do you think, I mean, this is a kind of an editorial type question, but do you think it deserves the kind of the, the controversial moniker that it has? Uh, and it's 20 years later, uh, they published a, you know, a collection, an omnibus of it, which I actually have in my hand as we speak. Um, and even on the back cover, they kind of said it was one of the most controversial stories of the 90s. Do you think that's fair? Uh, you know, on some level that we wanted it to be. We wanted it to be something people talked about. I'm not sure controversial is the right word. And if, if, if anything about it was controversial, it was that Tony ended up being the sort of bad guy, the problem, and that we ended up replacing him with Teen Tony. I, I would argue that what followed shortly after that, which was Heroes Reborn, was probably a little more controversial in some sense, but I guess history gets to make those decisions, <laughs> not me. When, when you're writing Iron Man, I mean, again, the, the first few issues you're writing, it's interesting that you know you're writing... Basically, the bad guy of the story is the centerpiece of your book. So what is it like crafting a story where you're having him go down this road, he's committed some bad acts, he essentially is the villain, but he's still the hero of your story? Well, if you're writing bad guys or villains correctly anyway, they don't believe they're villains. Dr. Doom doesn't get up in the morning and say, what villainous, nasty thing can I do to people today? If, you, if he's written correctly or if he's written well, that's not what happens. He, Dr. Doom believes that he's better suited to run the world. The world would be better off with him running it. Tony Stark, in a lot of ways, believed the same things. And he didn't believe that he needed approval from others for certain actions. But I don't think I ever wrote a bad guy from the perspective of, I know I'm a bad guy and I have to figure out something to do today that's even more evil than what I did yesterday. I just think that's lazy writing. People are doing that. And not just in comic books, in any form of media. Now, with the, the, the initial kind of, uh, I guess, um, shot that started The Crossing, there was that one shot. I believe you and Bob Harris did the story for that. Am I correct? Yes, but please don't ask me specifics about <laughs> these scenes because... Well, it's not a question about a scene so much as um, a character. Like, whose idea did it kind of come up with to kill off the future Yellow Jacket of, as well as Marilla? Uh, and were there any other characters that had originally been maybe discussed as being killed off in that initial one-shot? I would give a lot of the credit to Bob Harris. Bob is a brilliant storyteller. Uh, he really is. He always was. Uh, I enjoyed working with him. I, I edited him on some stories for Marvel Comics Presents. He edited me on some stories for the X-Men universe. And then we wrote together on that Avengers series. And every working experience I had with Bob was excellent. He really understands storytelling. He understands how to pace it, how to where you need the emotional moments, where you need to interrupt the action to to pull in on a character, both visually and emotionally. Um, I would say 
again, I, I don't remember this exactly or clearly, but I would say Bob drove a lot of the storytelling points in that series. When... I feel like, if I remember correctly, Bob was the writer on The Avengers and was becoming sort of increasingly overwhelmed between that and his day job of editing X-Men and really sort of needed help. And I just came on those books, I think originally probably to just script them. And then we started co-plotting them together and then it moved into me doing more of it. But uh, I was following Bob's lead from the beginning. With uh, with the the kind of culmination of that story leading to you know Tony dying and then Teen Tony kind of taking over from the minute you guys kind of were doing the plotting sessions was that always going to be the end game or was that something that developed as it was ongoing? Well, we knew it was moving towards Tony dying, and I again I could be wrong about this. I believe this actually garnered some more attention to Iron Man what we were doing on those books, so. We, even if Tony was going to die, we didn't want the Iron Man title, the Iron Man brand to go away. And Team Tony seemed to be a good solution. In, um, in many ways, it echoed what we were then going to do with, uh, I'll, I'll say it out loud, with the Clone Saga uh, in the Spider-Man books. Because a lot, what happened and now I'm going to speak a little more about the Spider-Man element of this. What happened with the Spider-Man books, there were four or five titles at that point, and we all, as adults writing this book, had grown up. Now suddenly we had mortgages and marriages and kids, and we found we had written Spider-Man towards our lives and written him away from really what the fan base identified with. And that was probably true of Tony Stark as well. Although Tony Stark always started out as a little bit of an older character. But we, we, there was a lot of effort at Marvel to return to the roots of the characters, the strengths of the characters and what resonated best with the fans. Because that's who we were writing, all at writing and drawing and creating all of this for. It really was for the fans. And as I said earlier, we just appreciated that privilege so much that that was never far out of anyone's head. And when we suddenly realized with these characters, wow, we've written them into our lives, and that's not the point, that they're supposed to be escapist fantasy for people that don't have mortgages or, or marriages or kids. Uh, we were constantly looking for ways to dial that back, but nobody wanted to just retcon stuff and say that this never happened or that never happened. So we had the freedom in comic books in this fantasy science fiction world of doing things like pulling a teenage Tony Stark out of the past in and taking over the role of Iron Man. And we had the freedom to have a clone of Peter Parker who had not finished school or married the most beautiful, successful model in town or become a teacher or any of those things. We had the freedom to do that, to, to, to pull a clone out of our hat, to pull a teenage character out of the past if we wanted to because of the particular uh, genre we worked in. Uh, well, since you brought up Spider-Man, so I think it's been widely attributed that the original idea to bring back the clone was yours? Yes. Yes, it was. I, I can't deny it. Uh, <laughs> although, 
my standard explanation is what I really pitched was the Crone Saga about Aunt May. And <laughs> it was just all those old writers and their bad hearing that it went horribly awry. <laughs> what was it about the even the idea of bringing back that clone that appealed to you as a writer? I mean, you've kind of mentioned it already that we, you could kind of do something and bring a character back to basics without having to be clumsy or forget continuity, but what, what was it about that original story that kind of stuck in your mind and then when you were at that retreat that you're like, well, wait a minute, what if we do this? Well, the original story was very powerful to me. I remember the Jerry Conway story very clearly from when I was younger and I, it, it, there were a lot of messages in it that I don't know that I could have articulated when I was a kid but I certainly could have as I was older and I was writing the character and I realized it spoke to messages about this, it, you know, your, uh, uh, a character's humanity was not dependent on the circumstances of their birth and certainly by the 80s and 90s in the real world that was more and more of an issue you know, you had test tube babies that were growing up. I remember the cover of Time magazine with Dolly the clone sheep. And I also really struggled all the time with Spider-Man, as did all of the creative teams, to say we've got to get this character back to what really works for everyone. We didn't want to have him get divorced from Mary Jane because that was adding more baggage onto him instead of clearing some baggage away from him we didn't so if, if we wanted to move forward in a way that like I said was organical was organic to the character and it really was a story it wasn't just we were going to make a declaration of saying okay it's five years ago and now we're going back to before he graduated school or uh, married we didn't want to undo or disrespect anything that any of the um, other writers had done or that any of our fans had read and enjoyed. We wanted to make sure all of those things still existed in the Spider-Man universe and we didn't want to deny any of that, but yet we didn't want to have to keep writing this very, very adult Spider-Man. We couldn't de-age him, but we... I came up with a way that was meant to have the real Peter Parker. It was still going to be Peter Parker, but it was going to be the real Peter Parker out out there wearing the costume and trying to figure out how to fight crime and get his homework done and be there for Aunt May when she was in the hospital and all those things that were key to that character, to that character's sense of responsibility. And instead, we suddenly found ourselves, oh, a sense of responsibility was how do I pay my mortgage? How do I do these things that really very little of our audience could identify with? So um, that's how that came about. And we always, there was always a mandate at Marvel, if you could do an event, there wasn't a specific mandate at that time saying we have to do an, an event during this quarter, but if there was an event, that would be great because it was easier to market, it was easier to promote. The original plan for the Spider-Clone saga, I came up with the idea. I spent a lot of time discussing it with Howard Mackey before I ever pitched it at the Writers' Conference. Um, so we developed the storyline before pitching it. And the original plan is I think it was going to be three or four months in all four of the titles, which would effectively be about a year and a half's worth of story. But at the end of that, Ben Riley was going to take back Peter Parker's life 
and he was going to move forward as the character, as the Peter Parker we all knew and loved before we wrote him into our adult lives. What happened was the sales and marketing department, we effectively tripled sales on the books with the Clone Saga, and they just kept coming back to us and saying, you can't end it. Give us, we want to solicit another two months of this. And you can't end it. You can't end it. <laughs> Went on for I, two and a half years or something. I was thankfully off the books by that point. Now, you got to be the, the first writer to officially like have uh, Ben Riley like on panel, have it you know actually interact with Peter. What was it like kind of being the first one to kind of go there? You know, it, 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 <laughs> this is going to sound strange. It wasn't that big a deal because it was Peter. We were. I was effectively writing Peter Parker. I was just reading writing Peter Parker with a slightly different life experience for the past four or five years. However, you want to identify that missing period between the time of the original clone story and that. Uh, I. It was Peter Parker. It was a character I knew very, very well. I knew his voice very well. It wasn't that difficult. It really wasn't. And again, the fun of that storyline was if you put a bad guy against a good guy. If you put like I said earlier, a good girl with a, with a bad guy. That's interesting drama. But if you put a bad guy against a good guy, we all know what the rooting value is there. There's there's not a lot of surprises. We know where it's going to go. But Ben Riley was Peter Parker. Peter Parker was a good guy. So you had two good guys in a bad situation. That was just built-in drama because you never knew where the rooting value was going to be. We didn't know who we wanted to win in any given situation. We couldn't wait to get to the point where they were working together because it almost felt, I shouldn't speak for all the writers, but I I think I can speak for Howard and myself. We almost felt like these guys would work together. They're good guys, and they're always people trying to figure out how to work with others, not against them. So we can't drag on this conflict between them for too long it, it would be unrealistic and not true to the characters now in the months leading up to actually having the clones I kind of start in that power and responsibility story arc there was a few issues I think of each title where we saw this mysterious figure kind of coming closer to New York um, what was it like kind of pitching that I guess with the group and and sprinkling that in and did a lot of people guess who it was uh, I don't believe so. I don't think I don't remember anybody guessing who it was. And there was certainly a mandate amongst the Spider Group to not talk about it at the office. And we had the code name for the storyline was Rosebud because uh, <laughs> that's how original we were. Um, and it just whenever we wanted to talk about that, we did not want it leaking out even at the Marvel offices for a number of different reasons. We just then it was going to leak out to the fans because people were going to talk, they all had friends, etc. So, uh, the way the pitch actually went was, when I pitched it, there was initially some fleeting resistance from Mark DeMattis, who felt, I remember him saying, well, we just had this storyline where Peter's parents came back, and then they turned out to be LMDs or androids or something, I feel like we'd just be doing the same thing again. And as soon as I said to him, no, that's not the case. In fact, this ostensibly clone comes back, and he turns out to be the real Peter Parker. Once I sort of made that clearer to everybody, they could all see the Spider-Universe being upended completely and how much 
drama there would be to write there and how interesting it would be, especially because, like I said, it was two good people in a, a bad situation. Now, Danny Fingeroth, who is the editor of the Spider Titles, was rightfully very scared about this because he, again, rightfully knew that his job was to shepherd this character and protect this character and protect the character the fans loved. And he was a little afraid he'd be betraying the character or the fans who'd been reading about this particular version of Spider-Man for 20 years or so. So he wanted to uh, discuss it with Tom DeFalco. He wanted to bring Tom DeFalco, the editor-in-chief, in the next day. Tom might have even been writing one of the Spider-Books. I, I can't remember. Um, and he wanted to bring Tom the next day in to discuss this. I don't think Danny wanted to take complete responsibility for it without uh, some approval. And we begged him because... We knew that Danny wasn't 100% behind it, so we begged him not to tell Tom ahead of time. We didn't want him saying, you know, Tom, they want to do this thing where they're bringing uh, the clone back, but then the clone turns out to be... And we just knew the way he would pitch it to Tom would be in a sort of negative way, and we didn't want to taint Tom's perception of this coming into it. So Danny agreed not to tell Tom. Needless to say, Tom came the next day, and Danny had told him ahead of time to all of our disappointment, and Tom came prepared to completely shut it down, and his initial position and argument was, it'll be just like that year on the Dallas TV show where Bobby had died at the end of one season, and then uh, there was a whole season where Bobby was dead, and then at the beginning of the next season, his wife Pam steps out of the shower, and Bobby's there, or something like that, and Bobby's there, and it turned out the entire previous season had been a dream, and Tom said, you know, that's just not really fair to the to the fans to tell them that everything they had read for the last 20 years wasn't real. And I was able to say, but that's not the case here, Tom. Everything they read was real. It really did happen, and it really did happen to the guy who thought he was Spider-Man, but it was just mistaken identity at the root of that. But all those events still happened, and they all happened to a real character and a real per person that the fans cared about. We're not telling him they shouldn't have cared about him. He's a real guy. He found the love of a real woman, etc. And to Tom's credit, he heard that and he said, eh, you're right. And then Tom got on board and Tom even was the one who suggested, well, you know what? We'll have Mary Jane get pregnant. And that's what convinces the current Peter Parker to walk off into the sunset with her. Because now his with great power comes great responsibility applies to his family instead of the rest of the world since there is another single Peter Parker slash Spider-Man out there to take care of the rest of the world. So Tom contributed to how exactly we were going to get to our ending at that point and really got on board, as did everybody else. So Danny really had no choice but to jump on the train. Now, after the initial storyline, the, the, the books kind of broke up where two of the books got the focus on Ben Riley's adventures and created the Scarlet Spider uh, character. And I guess you had Stephen Butler came aboard the book with you. What was it like working with Stephen and actually, you know, fleshing out this version of Peter Parker and creating the Ben Riley persona as we know him now? Well, working with Stephen was always a pleasure. He's a great storyteller. He's a great artist. He's... Uh, very creative and imaginative and contributes a lot to what we were doing and creating together and any it was just such a pleasure to get pages back from Peter because anything I had envisioned on a page I wrote I mean uh, would come back from Stephen better than what I had envisioned he always added more to the page than what I had envisioned as for how 
Um, the Scarlet Spider was going to develop. That was a team effort. Uh, he was an existing character. He was Peter Parker, you know, as I said earlier. He was an existing character already, but it was a team effort on to how he was going to readjust to life here, to, to his supporting cast that had been his friends and family before he left to go away. And one of the things that Howard and I pitched from the beginning, I'm a strong believer in not no story point should close any doors in continued character storytelling or if it does close a door it should open a window you should always have be moving stuff forward not just shutting something down that happened before so part of howard's and my initial pitch was we have four spider titles we're probably gonna evolve into five or six spider titles if the sales do increase this way we don't have to be stuck doing just this one Peter Parker spread across four or five or six titles, which was logistically difficult for all the writers to manage. We had to make sure we weren't, you know, I couldn't write a storyline with Peter in space if Mark DeMattis was doing a storyline where Peter was trapped in the sewers. You just sort of had to tie things together. We were aware this is going to open new doors. We can do new series called The, the Lost Years of, of Spider-Man which would cover Ben Riley's life while he was away on the West Coast, sort of hiding out. We knew he was still Peter Parker, so when trouble arose, he was still going to be heroic and, and, and step in and do those things, and there was still going to be drama around his life. So we were aware from the beginning that this is going to make it easier on everyone. We can split it up. We can do two books about Peter Parker, two books about Ben Riley. We knew we could do that. When Howard and I first pitched it, we knew we could get to that. Again, we were hoping to have wrapped up the storyline in three or four months, and then we could go on to doing, uh, now we would have Ben Riley would get his normal hair color back, he would take over Peter Parker's life, Peter and Mary Jane would go off into the distance, but then we could do books about that Peter and Mary Jane. At the same time, we were doing you know, books about the New York Peter. We could do books about the lost years of the new Peter. It's hard to decide how to refer to each Peter. But <laughs> you look now, Marvel's got how many Spider-Men living in New York at the same time? You know, you got Miles Morales, they have the same name, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and that doesn't seem to be an issue for people. And yet it keeps, it's a way to do more and more with the brand without diluting a specific character. Now, I, I had a question. Um, who, when you and Howard were kind of, because you guys were writing Web of and Objectivus at that time, so your stories were most closely interweaved during this four-month period when Ben Riley kind of took over your books. Um, was Whose decision was it or kind of concept to immediately put him up against Venom as a juxtaposition of where Peter was at that point and then how Ben would face him? and that would have been Howard because I don't specifically remember um, coming to that so possibly Howard possibly Danny Fingeroth I'm not really sure I know that Howard and I specifically created the character of Kane for very similar reasons we I never thought of the Jackal as a real physical threat and we wanted we needed somebody physical for Spider-Man or the Spider-Men to be battling so 
that's how he came up with Kane. He would be the physical threat at the heart of all this. And again, would be yet another version of Peter Parker. And so we would know how to write this character. He just had experienced a very, very different life from birth on that our Peter or either Peter or Ben had ever experienced. And the way I always described it about Kane was, uh, I know you asked about Venom and I'm off on Kane. I apologize. That's but, okay. I love Kane. So that's okay. Uh, we did too. We really did. And the way I always described it is if Ben Riley thought he was a sort of monstrous human because of the circumstances of his birth, Ben focused on the human part of it. And, Cain felt he was a monstrous human as well because of the circumstances of his birth and the pain, but he focused on the monstrous part of it, and that was the key difference between the two of them. And then you had the existing, the current Peter Parker at that time, who just thought he was a human and now had to question, well, maybe I shouldn't have been so secure in my identity about myself, and was getting signals from both of these other basically brothers under the skin of his. So they were effectively all brothers. Now, question: When when you so when you developed Kane, you always knew who he was going to be. It was never like a, just a, this is a mysterious guy. We'll figure it out later. No, he was always meant to be the Jackal's first attempt to clone uh, Peter Parker, but physical problems with the birthing process, the cloning process, had led to uh, horrible scarring and constant pain. In fact, I'll tell you a little anecdote about that. Uh, what Howard and I agreed to, this also speaks to what I was talking about, how difficult the logistics were to write in this shared mini-universe of Spider-Man books. So Howard and I agreed to introduce his character, Kane. We'd obviously run it through editorial. You had to have approval from editorial to do anything. And then I, the first appearance was going to be in, in web and it was going to be one page, and I think the only word used was going to be pain. Every thought of Cain's was pain, more pain, lots of pain, lots of painful pain. You know, that's really all it was going to be about, and there was going to be a certain air of mystery to him. And then the second appearance would be in Howard's book, and he would introduce a little more about Cain. Um, and and it you know, Cain felt a lot of pain because of the circumstances of his birth in a laboratory, etc. And we were going to tease it out a little bit. And I wrote my scene that way and then uh, sent it in. And then what usually happened was you would get black and white Xeroxes of the finished book, would get sent to the writer of that book and all the other writers in the Spider-Verse so they could understand they were writing the next chapter, etc., and they could see how the previous one would come out. And I got an angry call from Howard Mackey saying, we spent hours discussing this, and all you were supposed to do in your introductory scene was he was a character driven by pain, and then I was going to introduce like one or two things, and instead you told Kane's entire story in the first page, in the first appearance. So said, I don't know what you're talking about, Howard. And he faxed me the page, and it had been rewritten by editorial to effectively lay the entire story of Cain out there so that what Howard had already written for the next chapter of Cain, the next page, was like five steps backwards. And Howard at first was angry at me, but then understood this had been done in, in the editorial offices, and they had chosen to not share it with me, I guess because of concerns that I might have pointed out to them, 
that they're then screwing up what Howard's doing in his book and then what DeMattis would be doing in his book, et cetera, et cetera, because it was all scoped out how we were going to tell Kane's story in what pieces, and they just threw it all on that first page. Wow. So I want to go back for a second. I've always wondered, um, you introduced the character of, uh, I don't know how, even how you pronounce it, Facade? Facade, yes. Facade, and you, you did a big death. You, I mean, well, a relatively big death. You killed Lance Bannon, who'd been around a long time. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, um, the character then disappeared um, after, I guess, Spider-Man was knocked unconscious, and then we never saw him again. Yes, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I don't <laughs> even remember who he was going to be. I know that I did know who he was going to be at the time. And then the... It, editors insisted we sort of write him out of the book and not complete that story and move on to something else now it's interesting that years later um, Dan Slott would have uh, the character show up again and almost uh, reveal himself but then Spider-Man didn't have time to, to pay attention and had to go somewhere else <laughs> yes yes well I, I love Dan's writing I think he's a tremendously good writer he's perfect for Spider-Man and I take that as a compliment that he had that character show up again I take it as a compliment that he's reintroducing the the Spider-Clone saga to the Spider-Man universe now when what what led you to to kill off Lance Bannon was he just not a supporting character you enjoyed very much (laughs) yeah he didn't do much for me he was a bit one note to me what did you like about using Ken Ellis then uh, I can't really remember at this point, but I, I, there, you did need to introduce new blood because otherwise the characters all started traveling in these same little circles amongst their supporting cast, and you knew what any scene between any two characters would entail because they had scenes like that 12,000 times previously. So you had to introduce new blood. There was always something fun about using old characters in new ways, but it was best if they had some new characters to play off of. I can't speak to anything specific about um, Ken Ellis, though. That's okay. Um, Now, I guess a year or so before the Clone Saga happened, you guys also were involved in the Maximum uh, Carnage storyline. Yes. What was it like kind of breaking that out? Because that was like one of the first big, like very intensive spider crossovers where it was 14 chapters. Like that's no small feat. No kidding. Um, I think I was a relatively new writer to the Spider-Verse at that point. And I probably was relatively quiet at those writers' conferences and really was just led along by it. I know what my intent was in there was was Spider-Man tended to be a bit of a loner and I wanted to explore that he had to let that go a little bit and work with others because there was some maximum carnage going on and it wasn't something he could handle himself which by nature he always tried to do to not get others involved to not risk them but he had uh, really developed some strong relationships with other characters by being the heroic you know, good guy that he was, and so I wanted to explore him accepting his need to sort of work with others. It's interesting um, when I when I read your issues of, of Web from Maximum Carnage over as a kid, those are like the hardest to find because I guess Web was 
I guess, you know, of the four titles was not maybe the one that was carried at the most newsstands. So it, was, it wasn't until years later I finally had a chance to read your chapters, and I actually really liked them. Thank you. Um, I also like, and you had some big stuff happen too, because I mean, obviously it was a long storyline, but you know, the, the death of, well, the quote unquote death of Dagger was a big deal uh, yeah. in the storyline, and you actually got to focus on that. I did. I loved the characters of Cloak and Dagger. I always did. I thought they were great fun, and I eventually had a short term stint as a writer on their series. Uh, what was it like creating the character of Quicksand? I believe it's, or is it Sandstorm? I might be wrong. Uh, I think I was Sandstorm, and Tom right. DeFalco created Quicksand. Sorry, yeah. So what was it like creating Sandstorm? It was good. It was an effort, and this was probably an editorial mandate, but I can't swear to that. And maybe I just used that as an excuse to throw push responsibility away from myself. <laughs> um, I, I, a lot of Spider-Man's characters, uh, villains, were sort of tired. Doc Ock specifically for me was one that I was like I don't think I'd be scared of this guy with the paunch and the bad haircut <laughs> little did I know what my own future held uh, <laughs> I might have been a lot more scared uh, under those circumstances but um, and even Sandman had been probably partially redeemed by then and I think had been trying to be a good guy yet that was a really neat power set that he had so I know myself, I was happy to sort of bring a new Sand character to the Spider-Verse because, like I said, I thought it was a great power set and, and Sandman had been played a lot already and I think he was really on the road to redemption at that point, if not already there. I think Tom DeFalco had written him working with the Avengers, which was really neat. It was an interesting thing to see, but it also worked really well uh, for a villain, and I didn't want to give that up. No, I do want to ask some questions about X-Men, because as, as you mentioned before, you did work for, in the X-Office. How did yeah. that book kind of come about for you? Um, I was asked to... So I believe John Ostrander was writing the title at that time. Yep. And I think John had some personal stuff going on in his life. I don't really know the details of it. I don't know John. I respect his work very much. And I was asked to script an issue very quickly overnight because I was in New York. I was around. Uh, my One of my ex-interns, I think, was the editor on the title at that point, Jay Gardner. Um, I was asked to script an issue basically overnight. I think I took a day and a half, not just a day. And they really liked it. And they asked me to continue on the book. And working in the X office was a very different uh, experience than working in any other office because, like I said earlier, Bob Harris, being a consummate storyteller, really did uh, drive the storylines he wanted to see on his books more than I ever did as an editor. I, When I was an editor... And I had five titles. I didn't want to be coming up with the storylines for all five titles. So I hired writers and artists whose work I really respected. And then I let them do their thing. They had to run everything through me before they would commit it to the page. But I would let them do their thing. And my job would be, like I said, to shepherd the characters and make sure they stayed viable as much as possible. And they stayed integrated into the Marvel Universe clearly and cleanly. 
Bob had story ideas for what he wanted all his characters that he was editorially responsible for to do. So he would give a lot of direction. And he would say, this is the direction I see X-Man going in. This is the direction I see Storm going in. And it was a little less of a blank page scenario. So you could uh, sit back and say, okay, there's, there's not a mandate, but a direction had been given to me. And now it's up to me to make dramatic storytelling out of that direction to move the character from point A to point B. What did you like about writing that character? Because obviously it's a very... It's a very different type of character, and obviously, it kind of comes with a lot of baggage. It's a you know a lone survivor from a dead ta- timeline. Like it's a very kind of crazy out there concept. But your stories are a lot more grounded than that. How did you kind of approach the character? I I really loved that character because he was a bit of a clean slate, and he wasn't mired in the well, mired's bad word because it sounds negative. But he wasn't part of the existing X-Men culture in the Marvel Universe, you know, that they were all feared and hated by humanity, etc. He came from a world where maybe they were feared by humanity, but they ran things. The mutants sort of ran things. So he didn't come with this sort of shame of being a mutant, uh, trying to hide amongst the people or try to be a hero to those people so they would stop hating him, etc. He was just a guy who had, he was a young guy, so he wasn't very mature. He had tremendous power, and there was very little way to rein him in. You know, he was a good guy, but that didn't mean he was always going to make good decisions. And I really enjoyed writing those storylines where he was hanging out in Washington Square Park, and there was a bit of a messiah thing growing up around him and he didn't know enough to be afraid of that you know he sort of enjoyed it he was a very different character who i was able to write in a different way than most people had to write mutants in the marvel universe and 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 the other writers i I will say this the other writers of the x universe when we'd be at writers conferences i think they were a little envious of that you know they were writing characters that in, a, in, a, in an X-Men culture that Chris Claremont and John Byrne and Paul Smith and others had very clearly established that there was a way to do it, and it was a great way to do it. Um, I, I don't, I'm not belittling that at all, but I had a much airier, cleaner slate to work with. He got sort of dumped into this, but I minimized Nate Gray's interaction with the X-Men and the other Marvel Universe at first, and the other mutant universe at first. What was it like kind of, you know, playing with this, you know, because you, you got you kind of got to grow your own supporting cast for the character. I mean, obviously he kind of had Threnody at that point, but yeah. besides that, you kind of got to kind of weave it full cloth. What was that like? It was great fun. It, it You know, as always, that was fun, and this was a character who... You know, like I said, when we were writing Ben Riley or, or Spider-Man or Peter Parker, Peter Parker, there was a voice in my head. I, it was very easy to script him. Nate Gray could be anybody. You know, I could shape him in the way I wanted because I think John Ostrander had only really written maybe 14 issues or something before that. So there was a lot open to me to do that. And I could bring in characters. I could bring in good girls and bad girls and you know, that was the introduction of Madeline Pryor was meant to be 
a little more of a bad girl thing going on there. And what I was moving towards, I don't remember if we ever really got to it, because I realized that, okay, with Madeline Pryor, I have, she's a bad girl, and Nate's a bit of a bad boy. And so what I was really moving towards was Nate Gray and Kitty Pryde, sort of the ultimate good girl. And then Nate Gray, the sort of rebellious bad boy. That I knew would have a lot of sparks. I don't think I ever actually got there, but that's what I was moving towards. I think Warren Ellis might have gotten there first with Pete Wisdom, though. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right, he did. And a a much better boy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, And, you know... I wouldn't even dream of competing with Warren Ellis. What was it like? So around that time, you got to, I guess you were co-writing or co-plotting with Alan Davis on the Main X books. What was it like to be on kind of the Main X title after being on a title that, as much as it was part of the X office, kind of got to do its own thing? Well, Alan had a lot of freedom to do what he wanted on the X books. And I have to tell you that... uh, Working with Alan in any capacity is some of the greatest experience in my professional life. Alan's a close friend now, a great guy. Uh, I started out with tremendous respect on for him because I remembered him from the Captain Britain series. I have a lot of family in Ireland, and I would go to Ireland when I was a young teenager, and I would buy those Marvel UK books that had Captain Britain before they were ever appearing or could have been purchased over here in America. I had I was lucky enough to have some early exposure to that with the Alan Moore, Alan Davis stuff. And um, then I was in Senti's assistant when we launched when we were launching Excalibur. I think Alan had done a number of or a couple of X Men annuals with Chris Claremont, and then we were launching Excalibur to take advantage of that working relationship. And um, I really, really enjoyed Alan personally and professionally and then when I had a chance he he drew uh, an X-Man annual that I had written that at that point was you know my favorite writing experience of my life because I'd be on the phone with Alan and he'd shoot down some ideas I had or, or help build them up or help shape them into something stronger and then when I was working with him as the scripter on the X-Titles he was writing what he wanted. Bob gave him a lot of uh, freedom and leeway, and I think he did some great work. And then I knew what Alan liked. I knew Alan's voice for any of the X-Men. He and I had talked about these for hours and hours and hours on end. He and I both believed that characters like Nightcrawler and Storm, who English was a second language to, wouldn't use a lot of contractions. Um so it was very easy. It was it was that was easy scripting for me, and I didn't have to get involved in any of the politics of the ex offices or because that was poor Alan's job. He had to do that to get approval for the plots. But I think Bob, like I said, gave him a lot of leeway on that. Back in your editing days, what was it like editing Speedball uh, with Steve Ditko as the artist, and the writer and artist at, at first? You know that was. I, I had to pinch myself a lot because, you know, Steve is a very interesting man. He's a very quiet man. He's a brilliantly creative guy, but he would show up at the Marvel offices with pages and come to my office and talk to me. And I couldn't believe that, <laughs> that Steve Ditko is working for me as opposed to me worshiping Steve Ditko. Um, 
that was uh, another highlight of my career. But that's probably the title I contributed the least to. You know, this was just a deal that Tom DeFalco had made with Steve. And he said, Steve, you create this character. You can do what you want with it. Steve had a very old-fashioned approach to storytelling. And I wasn't messing with it at all. It was exactly the book it was trying to be. It wasn't trying to be dark and gritty. It wasn't trying to do any of those things. It was a fun, lighthearted character done by one of the greatest talents in the business with a very unique and distinctive style. Uh, And I didn't tell Steve what to do. I don't think I asked for any changes. I did suggest to Tom DeFalco before, when we just started working on it, I suggested to Tom that Speedball maybe wasn't the greatest name since it was the street name for a combination of heroin and cocaine. (laughs) And, you know, Tom looked at me sort of funny and said, why do you know that? (laughs) I said, well, you know, because I don't live under a rock. Uh, And and Tom said, well, I think most people are going to think of it as the name of an inking nib. And I said, all right, Tom, if... (laughs) Sure, sure, fine, let's go with that. I just, I took my shot, I figured I, in case nobody else had brought that up to him, I should mention it, but I was a little afraid we'd get some negative feedback from it, but none of that came, so Tom was right to go forward with it. What led to the creation of Nightwatch? Uh, I, I wanted to do Batman. (laughs) I really, I wanted to write Batman, and... I was looking to introduce a character in uh, Web of Spider-Man at that point. Um, I think we had, it was Derek Robertson maybe did the backup series. And I think, don't quote me on that, although I guess I just quoted myself. uh, I think Danny was looking to try him out on something small, so suggested doing maybe a backup feature. We were trying to reintroduce the Rose into the storyline. think that's how that developed and then i really i started out sort of wanting to do batman but then i wanted to make it a little more science fictiony so i did the whole character from the his own future self coming back and giving himself the the uh, costume and then that leading to a lot of tragedy i was very surprised when it launched into its own book i don't think that spoke to the popularity of the character so much as the fact that Anything Marvel printed at that point was gold and spun off into its own title. I don't know how many titles a month we were publishing at that point, but everything sold. What was it like as a, as a creator to see something like a character you had created get their own ongoing series, though? It was great fun, and I got to work with Ron Lim, and I would have liked to have seen a toy come out of it, an action figure, but no such luck. But I someday it could happen. I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, the character doesn't show back up again because really my experience is that now, like I told you, now the kids who grew up reading those comics I wrote are now coming into their own and maybe becoming creators in the industry. So I, I could see the character showing up again. I well, thought he was a fun character. Well, it's interesting too that he, you know, he, because he was, it sounds silly, but he was in Maximum Carnage and that was a big storyline for a lot of people who are that like the right age for it? As you said, they were like kids, and that was that was kind of one of my gateway storylines to Spider-Man. 
is it the greatest Spider-Man story? No, but it worked for me as a kid. Like it was, it got me in, it made me care. And Nightwatch was a part of that. So I always remember the character because he was there. Yeah. And I loved using him there. I loved getting him more, uh, you know, integrated into the Marvel universe that way. Cause he was a little distance from it at first. He was literally on a desert Island and then came back and didn't seem to interact with a lot of other characters till that storyline. What was it like writing the uh, Black Hat miniseries? I remember, I only remember it as a kid because I remember seeing it on a, there was like a pullout ad for all the upcoming projects and I remember seeing it there. But I, to this day, I've never actually seen any of the actual issues. I know it exists, but I have never had a chance to actually see it in print. Oh, it was great fun writing the Black Hat. Again, you know, the fun there was she was a bad girl. And Spider-Man was a good guy. So there's friction there. There's sexual chemistry. There's, you know, I in my mind, the way I always played those two characters was she liked hanging around with Spider-Man because she hoped to be a little bit of a better person than she was. And he liked hanging around with her because he wanted to be an edgier person than he really was. They both were attracted to what they saw in the other that they wanted to have a little more of in themselves. Now, around the same time, you were also writing, uh, I believe, a few issues of Moon Knight. What was it like writing that character? Was that, again, kind of a, a Batman stand-in, or did you, get to, did you feel like you had more of an interest in the actual character? Well, it probably started as a bit of a Batman stand-in, but that character, when he was created, may have been intended to be Batman. But by the time I was writing Moon Knight... He'd really been clearly written with his own identity and voice and away from that, and that the whole split personality issues. Uh, I thought he was a great, fun character. And then I might have mistakenly sort of let the storyline get away from me when I was introducing the Hellbent and, and establishing that Frenchie was bloodline. I got really wrapped up in the whole Hellbent uh, thing. <laughs> And, and maybe Moon Knight got a little pushed to the side during that. If I had that to do over again, I, I feel like I made it Frenchie and the Hellbent story and maybe gave short shrift to Mark Spector and Moon Knight. How did, you, how did you navigate the transition from working in an editorial to being a writer as well? I think it's uh, – well, first I'll say I actually always thought it was sort of ass-backwards that – Many of the editors, when I first started editing Chris Claremont, I'd never written a comic book in my life. And I was telling Chris Claremont, who was a master at writing comic books, what to do or making suggestions or asking for changes. And I thought that was just topsy-turvy. I'm like, shouldn't I, if I'm going to be trying to shape Chris Claremont's stories, shouldn't I have more writing experience than Chris Claremont, not less, and that be true of all of the disciplines. I should probably have some artistic experience, some coloring experience, some lettering experience. It wasn't the way it worked in comic books, though. So you sort of learned the craft of writing comic books by being an editor and 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 seeing the process close up of what writers could successfully turn into stories. Like, we learned that a car chase doesn't really play well in a comic book the way it does on a movie screen or a TV screen. It's hard to get that sort of 
dynamic energy of a car chase across. Uh, there were things we learned. The other side of what we learned is, you know, in a in a movie or a TV show, they have to worry about special effects budgets. We didn't have to worry about that. It was it cost exactly the same to draw a big explosion as it did to draw two talking heads. So it was a very specific kind of storytelling you needed to know for the comic book medium. A lot of people think, oh, it's just storyboarding. It's the same as movie storytelling. It's really not. Uh, there are similarities between them. So it, 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 I started out as an assistant editor, and I learned what the editing process was and the writing process and the drawing process and the entire comic book creation process from there. And then I was able to sort of step in and dive deeper into writing. And when I first started writing, the first thing I wrote, first issue I wrote was an issue of Kickers, Inc. I spent a massive amount of time at the end of every page with a little aside. You know, there would be the page describing what I wanted the artist to draw, and then I have a little aside just to the editor and the artist saying, my intention for this page is to introduce this character, or to introduce this, uh, you know, because I was afraid it didn't come across in my description of the action. So I had to put it down there at the bottom. And my editors liked it because it meant they could say, okay, if that was your intention for this page, then this is a way to play it up a little better. Or that's probably not a good intention for this page at this point in the story. So the editors liked me doing that, but it was really me honing my craft on the page. And luckily I worked, like on Kicker's Inc., it was with Ron Friends, who was a totally experienced artist and storyteller, and everything I did wrong, he could correct. Now, I guess one of your, I guess, last kind of credits uh, was working on Before the Storm. What was that work like working on that kind of book? That was a lot of fun, and that was working under uh, Bobby Chase, I believe, who I was a good friend of mine, but I had never really worked with her before. She had written a uh, Spellbound or Spellcaster storyline for me for Marvel Comics Presents, but it was a lot of fun, and it was particularly fun to do a little bit of a supernatural take on these characters that were very much science fiction based. What was the initial like premise or, or I guess what was the I guess the pitch like when they come to you and say, well, we're going to do a story about these two characters before they were part of the Fantastic Four go? Yes, that's pretty much exactly what happened. They said they <laughs> wanted to I, it, I, for all I know, it developed from the title before the storm. So, you know, they thought maybe that was a great title and they said, oh, then let's do Johnny and Sue Storm before they were the Fantastic Four or something like I don't know. But they came to me saying, that's what we want to do. We want to do what shaped them into the relationship they had with each other, uh, family, as family and as, uh, as people who work together. So to explain how they came into the Fantastic Four as their own unit apart from the others. I actually I want to go back to Spider-Man for a second because we kind of mentioned it very much in passing earlier. But... Um, what gave you the idea for the spider armor? Uh, well, that was maybe a precursor to doing a sort of spider force thing of Spider-Man work. If I remember correctly, I think what I pitched for that, you know, it was the 100th issue. We were going to do something special. There was going to be a hollow foil cover. And I think what I pitched was that Peter needs to 
learn to play well with others a little better and maybe an initial version of the spider force maybe working with you know uh, it was a situation that was too big for just him so he'd have to work with cloak and dagger and a couple of others and i believe danny finger i'm not sure for what reason decided not to go with that but at that point said but you're right we have to do something special and different for this hundredth issue and that might not be the best motivation to have come up with the spider armor. I actually, in retrospect, think he's the last character on Earth who should have armor because what really worked about Spider-Man is when he was on, he never got hit. Nothing could touch him. So he's the last one who needed armor and was only going to be slowed down by armor no matter how much of a magical web-based polymer it was made out of. So it, I don't count it as one of my proudest moments. Is it interesting to you then that it, it seems to kind of crop up all the time? Like whenever there's a video game, they always use it as an alternate skin. Like it's very much, it's well, not maybe not remembered is the wrong word, but it's it's out there. Like people remember it very well. Does that kind of make you laugh that considering that you kind of think of it as not your proudest moment, but then everyone remembers it? It does make me laugh. And I have the action figure of, <laughs> Spider-Man in the spider armor. So, uh, you know, I'd rather have seen Nightwatch, but <laughs> you can't always get what you want. No, I suppose not. Um, <laughs> now, now, after writing uh, the Before the FF miniseries with the Storms, uh, where'd you go? After that? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I sort of moved out of comics... I don't hey, say make this sound like a sob story. So I'm an only child, and both of my parents, who divorced when I was very young, I live in Manhattan. One of my dad lived in the Bronx. My mom lived in Queens. Two months apart, they were both diagnosed with cancer. So I had to oh spend God. a couple of years just shuffling them around to different doctors' appointments. Um, and by the time I was really ready to, uh, you know, I did spot work in comics, and I did. Uh, uh, consulting work and I stepped in at one point when Mark Grunewald had passed away back into editorial for a while as a favor to Bob Harris but by the time I was ready to sort of come back into comics a lot of the people I knew on staff the editors had moved on and they were new editors that I didn't have previous working experience with and they had their own stable of creators and writers and it was a little tougher to break back into that so what I've been doing lately is I've uh, launched a startup called My Bean Jar, and we deliver targeted digital coupons as rewards for achievements in digital games and other content. It's a way to stay, to keep from growing up still. I went from comic books to games in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, I do what I can to resist the aging process. You can't tell by looking at me, but um, <laughs> uh, so we've done that startup and since I love comics and I have all these relationships in comics, I would like to actually promote this. We've launched a game called Angry Babies, uh, and we've partnered with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund to do this. And it's a sliding tile puzzle game, and there's a bunch of free ang pictures of angry babies in there that you can do the puzzles with. It's a free game. I went and angered some babies myself on the street and took pictures. <laughs> um, and I got... Lots of different creators from Walt Simonson to Tom Parker to Val Merrick, Steve Lytle, uh, Michael Gilbert to do angry baby versions 
of some of their characters or celebrities, which are available for purchase within the game for 99 cents, and all of that goes to the nonprofit comic book legal defense fund. Oh, wow, that's amazing. So that game can be found at the mybeanjar.com website, uh, and my bean jar as well can be found there, and I encourage people, just play, it's a free game, play the game and enjoy that, but while you're there, maybe make a purchase, and that money goes to a very good cause, and for my sake, I'd love if you also sign up for Bean Jar while you're there, more users for us, and you get to win free stuff playing games and checking out other content that's also Bean Jar enabled. Oh, very cool. Well, Terry, thank you so much for uh, for doing the show today. I'm sure the minute we're done, I'll think of 18 questions I should have asked you, uh, which is usually the way it goes. I uh, understand that. Usually it's about Weapon X that people think afterwards they should have asked. Yeah, okay. Well, let's go back there quickly then. <laughs> Sorry. You almost got out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oops. Oops. <laughs> well, okay. So what was it like working on Weapon X? You know. Exactly what you would think. I just I, the pages would come in, and I would have to try and keep my drool from messing up the pages. And Barry is Barry Windsor Smith was an amazing talent. He wrote and drew it himself. Um, he I didn't have to give him much direction. Obviously, I'm not sure how receptive he would have been to it, but he didn't need it anyway. Uh, there were some issues couple of interesting anecdotes you know bob harris and i were very good friends we still are but bob was in charge of the x-men office yet my mandate on marvel comics presents was to have wolverine as the lead feature all the time and at you know but i would have to get approval from bob on any storyline i was going to do with wolverine and if it was something that was really relevant to wolverine bob wanted to save that for his books so weapon x was a bit of an uphill battle um, and uh, he almost felt like we were doing Wolverine's origin. We really weren't. We were just focusing in on details of stuff we already knew about Wolverine's origin. We weren't really saying anything else new. But almost more to the point, the more interesting story is, um, at one point, sales heard about this, and they went to Tom DeFalco, and they said, this is... Barry Windsor Smith writing it and drawing it. He hasn't done anything Marvel for years and years and years. I had approached Barry and asked him to do, I think I approached Barry and asked him to do a cover. And then he came back to me and said, well, I'd rather do a, you know, a series. I love this format. I love the eight page thing. And I'm like, absolutely. I'm on board. So then sales came, went to Tom DeFalco and said, this series is, we should do this as a hardcover graphic novel. Cause they started seeing pages from it, and the color guides, and they said, you know, it's sort of wasted on Marvel Comics Presents on that we were still using the cheap paper on Marvel Comics Presents. And Tom DeFalco came to me and said, they're right. Uh, instead of doing this for Marvel Comics Presents, we're just going to package it as a hardcover graphic novel because it's really too good for Marvel Comics Presents. And I said, okay, Tom, let me get this straight. You're, I just need to understand this. I said, your mandate to me is that I have to do Wolverine stories as the lead feature of every issue. I didn't particularly want to do that, but sales demanded it. So your mandate is I have to lead feature every Marvel Comics Presents issue, comes out twice a month, has to be a Wolverine story. But if it's too good, then it has to go in some other format. So really your mandate to me is I have to do crappy Wolverine stories as the lead feature 
every two weeks in Marvel Comics Presents. I just want to understand it. Because if it's any good, it can't go in Marvel Comics Presents. It needs to have its own format. So you want me doing crap. You, and he just sort of stared at me for a minute. And I think he was deciding whether he was going to punch me <laughs> or what he was going to do. And he said, well, when you put it that way, you're absolutely right. And then he called the sales department and brought them in. And he said, Terry's going to do this as the lead feature in Marvel Comics Presents for a few months. And then we will repackage it in to a hardcover graphic novel on better paper. So, in fairness to Tom, he was, you know, Tom and I had a lot of head-butting and arguments, but I respect Tom tremendously, and he always listened. He was not stubborn. If you presented a better argument than he did, he went along with it. I gave you that example of the, you know, the Spider-Clone storyline and, and, uh, Weapon X, it was the same thing. You know, what sales first said to him made sense, and then what I said to him made sense, so he came up with a way to satisfy both people. Wow, that's really quite interesting, actually. How different would that have been? (laughs) Um, I think Barry would have been upset because he had paced it as eight-page subsections. I wouldn't call them chapters, but he had very deliberately paced it that way. Um, and I think Barry actually liked that uh, restriction and that format. It gave him it was a it was a digestible amount of pages for him to write and draw. And we made sure we had most of those chapters in the draw before we scheduled it to start going into Marvel Comics Presents. And that was sort of my mistake. I had enough of it in the drawer before I had solicited it for Marvel Comics Presents that the sales department had seen it. And said, oh my God, this is almost complete and it would be a great graphic novel. So let's do that. It would have been a short graphic novel. And that was sort of my mistake. If it was already scheduled for the book, that never even would have been an issue. But in the end, it went that way. And I don't think Barry would have appreciated it if it had just been scooped out from Marvel Comics Presents and um, done went straight to a different format. We did do that with some storylines uh, in an attempt to help meet budgets. Uh, we did a Master of Kung Fu. I think it was a Master of Kung Fu that Doug mentioned done that was planned to be an eight-part storyline in Marvel Comics Presents. And then Tom DeFalco came and said, we need to do a couple of one-shot 64. Pa- Anybody have anything we can do that with? Anything in the drawer? We need to do it to meet budget. And I called up Doug Mench. I called up the creative team, and I said, how would you feel about me offering this to Tom to do in that format instead of Marvel Comics Presents? And since they were on board with it, I was too, and I became the editor of those projects. And you read some of those things. I think the New Gods was one of them as well. You read some of them, and you can see they're done in eight-page segments. But it still worked because they were always meant to be one complete storyline. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for that insight into Marvel Comics Presents. That's actually pretty cool. And again, if I think of more questions, I may have to get you back on the show sometime in the future. Anytime. Happy to do it. Well, thank you so much for doing the show, Terry, and uh, have a good evening. Thank you. You too, Adam.